some reason don't unclick now that you know what it is join us among the brave who are willing to um at least say out loud climate change um a topic that uh is feel sometimes feels really good to avoid but if you avoid it for too long then you'll have like some kind of sciatic pain that you can't explain and just like chronic congestion so I think that for your long-term health, um, facing the facts might be um, better than not. Also, um, join in the resistance or whatever. I don't know what that means, but um, I will tell you that uh, part of the reason I haven't been putting out a lot of episodes is because I resist this so heavily. I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm supposedly a comedian, um, and I'm not even particularly a political comedian, but for some reason, uh, when Donald Trump was elected one day, I woke up in the morning and I was like, I have to start a podcast about climate change. So, um, here's to following really random instincts. I, um, am not really a political comedian either, but I am very existential. Also, there is a great helicopter above. Welcome to L.A trying out a new sound thing and uh, just recording straight onto the task cam. So one of my biggest issues with this podcast is um, my challenges with sound technology. So here I am, but hopefully we can improve and keep going and uh, uh, here we are. Okay, so I actually interest, I, I actually, yeah, I have a hard time even breaching this topic, uh, broaching it, I mean, not breaching like a whale. Uh, broaching it, uh, another comedian, uh, who I've actually had on this podcast has a show called News Broke. Her name is Francesca Fiorentini, and, uh, I was looking at Instagram as I do mindlessly, um, trying to feel as dead as possible, scrolling through, like, a worthless millennial, and I came across, like, her story on climate change, and I immediately clicked off of it, and, uh, I just think that that is uh, really interesting. It's just like, um, I, I also think that I do follow like climate change Instagram accounts and I think they're really good because I get to see like some action and some, um, some direction on, you know, it keeps me connected on what people are doing. Um, but I have to really limit my social media because it's really stressful the way it's like selfie, selfie, the Amazon burning, selfie, selfie, the Arctic burning, selfie, selfie, oh, here's a picture of a whale full of plastic, um, it can be, uh, really stressful, uh, but, so I have to limit that and just kind of get the information that I want to get and, uh, the social media connection that I want to get and then try to get off, I think I'm going to download one of those apps that locks me the fuck out of there after a while. Um, so that I can live my life and not make my brain just a low-processing computer. Um, So, yeah, limiting Instagram um, might be a good thing. I've also been um, 
in terms of like reading articles about climate change, I only read one a week because I like try to limit for my own mental health. If you don't know me, um, my mental health has been historically a little delicate and I think that I'm much more useful to humanity if I take care of myself first. And um, by that I mean I have to um, make sure that I'm functioning. And uh, that's just what we have to work with there. And then hopefully as time goes on, I can, I can build and build and have a healthy relationship with, um, with uh, combating these issues. At the same time, I don't think that ignoring them is a possibility for my mental health. I just think that, that it just festers. I think, it, I think that leaning towards a comfortable life is uh, where I am ignoring the more difficult parts of my life that make me grow. Um, is, is really damaging, uh, and uh, I'll build up a lot of resentments and, uh, frankly, pain. So I'm trying to find that balance. I got in an argument with my boyfriend because um, in the morning, because he was making me breakfast, and then I came out looking upset, and I was like, the Amazon is, is on fire. And he was like, how could you tell me that while I'm cooking breakfast? Like, some of us don't have the luxury of just worrying about these things because we work all the goddamn time. And um, he is someone that needs to protect his mental health too. And I could just see that um, he's also not a multitasker. So making breakfast and uh, thinking about the end of the world isn't a good combo for him. Uh, but I, I understand where he's coming from. I understand that that's a, that's a pain that we almost kind of can't comprehend. And um, so try to try to find that balance. And um, also, I, I found that like some meditation is, is pretty good. Like I, I do like some kind of visual meditations about nature and shit being restored. Um, like I'll just kind of like as I'm breathing, just like picture uh, like a black and white photo of a forest just getting greener and greener and greener. Um, in my picture, that's kind of weird, but, um, I think, uh, having some visual of, uh, nature healing, um, is a kind of positive reinforcement for me, and, uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I really, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, it's been a really fucking tough time, it's been a fucking tough time with all of the, there's fires going on in the Amazon, um, and in the Arctic, and, like, um, Indonesia, and, uh, it's just, um, it's fucking brutal, and at the same time, the U.S. is locking up immigrants, uh, who are, some of them trying to cross the border and separating the children from their families, and, and if you watch any of the videos, you can just hear children screaming, and it's just like, oh, fucking devastating and uh, and you can feel so powerless and overloaded and and um you know hopefully you don't spiral and take it to such a dark place um <sighs> because um I I feel like I don't know there's there's a part of me that's just like maybe unreasonably optimistic that when I think about giving in or just being like, well, it's hopeless. I just feel like so like, well, fuck that. Like, fuck you. <laughs> I'll fight you. Um, so 
maybe that's good. I don't know. I'm, I have to reel in some of my instincts or to judge people in some kind of shitty ways. Like, you know, there's some talk with the Amazon fires about deforestation for um, beef products for cattle. And uh, and I, I haven't eaten beef in a couple years. And... Uh, and I, I saw, you know, someone eating, one of my friends eating it the other day. And I, I just, like, I just felt uncomfortable around her. And I couldn't even really realize that it's because she was eating beef. And then, um, and then I kind of had to unwrap it in my head a little bit. Like, okay, I'm upset because she's eating beef. I'm not really upset because she's eating beef. Because I know that it's not really individual choices um, necessarily that are the biggest problem here. I really don't. I really think it's deeply systematic. And someone having you know, a hot dog or something isn't, like, the biggest issue. Like, it's it's, it's such a massive scale. It's such these massive corporations that are really doing um, the biggest damage. But um, then I kind of had to unwrap that, like, I was being judgmental to avoid my real feelings, which is um, I'm scared. Uh, yeah, I'm scared. I'm upset. Um, I don't know really what to do with people that are denying climate change or even like contributing to it by being like you know fuck yeah coal and fuck yeah america and uh, all this stuff it just um uh just it's um it's pretty upsetting and um you know all this anti-immigrant stuff is really painful too and um you know i've just been thinking so much about how um uh Climate change is so clearly rooted in colonialism and capitalism and, frankly, racism. Um, and uh, the more we put, um, the more we back, like, indigenous groups that are uh, fighting for their land, um, and the more we, we um, try, to, try to restore people's land to them, the better off we're going to be because... Um, uh, those are the people really doing the work. And so if, if we can put aside our, our racism and thinking it has to be white people that own shit and white people that own the lands, um, and, you know, just such an imbalance of power and such an imbalance of wealth, like, um, I, I, we got to start kind of systematically, uh, you know, chipping away at that. And, um, yeah, anyway, so uh, we, I talk, uh, this episode is uh, <laughs> uh, Riley Silverman, who's a comedian, and uh, she's fantastic. We, we talk a lot about comedy and just getting, she kind of tells her story about getting started in comedy, and then uh, we eventually kind of lead into talking about some of the issues that are plaguing us. Um, this was recorded before the Amazon fires really went viral, so we didn't really talk about that. Um, we did talk about um, the children, the camp, the the detention centers that children are in, um, fucking babies. Um, Jesus, so upsetting. Um, so, anyway, um, I hope that you all listen and uh, if and let me know what you think about. Uh, this podcast, the direction of this podcast. I talk to comedians because I am a comedian, and um, 
com- comedian millennials are really my specialty in terms of like the specific kind of brain we have, which is a uh, not gonna lie, it's a really weird one. We have we've uh, existed on a really strange plane in history, and um, I'm sorry that I haven't been too attentive to this podcast. And um, I'm actually really gonna make a commitment to seeing where this can go, um, even though it's difficult for me. And you probably, which is why you're probably not listening. And if you still are, God bless you. (laughs) And God bless America. Okay, here's uh, Riley Silverman. Hello, everybody. I am sitting here with Riley Silverman, comedian (laughs) extraordinaire. (laughs) How's your day? Uh, so far, so good. Uh, not, you know, like I got to sleep in a little bit, which has been rare lately. So that was nice. Uh, made myself a, a interesting breakfast and then uh, came here. Interesting how? I, so I bought an air fryer recently because I'm trying to like eat a little healthier and like cut down on like grease and stuff. But then I like did the opposite of healthy by making spam today. And I like was because I, I was I was doing like a spam and eggs thing. Kind of like I was kind of doing a spam masubi kind of vibe because I got this like. I got this sticky rice at Costco, and I was, like, making that with eggs, and I went online, like, hey, can you cook Spam in an air fryer? And then I was, like, Spam fries is what the air fryer, like, it should, like, it's, like, like, instead of cutting it up into, like, slices, you cut it up into, like, sticks and toss it in the air fryer, and they get all crispy. So I don't know if there's any keto fans out there that would, like, want a nice crispy meat snack but i found it very good with some rice and eggs and some soy sauce wow that is an interesting breakfast yeah it was not what i was expecting to do today but i was like well now that i've seen this i have to try it i don't i don't eat spam very often because it's disgusting but i mean it's also delicious so awesome Yeah, yeah i used to i used to eat a lot of spam and then uh i stopped eating spam but spam's big in my family everyone has a spam shirt like I never, thing. I never liked it as a kid, and then I, so I never really ate it much as an adult. And then what got me back into it was eating. Like someone insisted that I try spam masubi at the farmers yeah. market in Studio City, and I tried it. And like this is really good, and so then like I don't make it all that often, but when I do, I usually put a little soy sauce or teriyaki on it, and with some like rice and egg, and I kind of like it a lot more. So, so are you doing a keto thing? I was. I I quit that because um, I just I, when I started working out again, I felt like I had no energy. And I feel like once yeah. you get off the keto train, it's so hard to get back on it. Like, I was never yeah. really doing keto. I was just being really conscious of my carbs because, and I still need to be a little bit about that because, not for keto reasons, but because I have a little bit of diabetes history in my family. So I need me to be too, careful. Me like, too, my, me too. Yeah. So I got to watch out for the sugars and stuff. So. Rad. We were just reminiscing about the first time we met was I saw you perform at Lost Weekend Video yeah. in San Francisco, RIP. Senate Cave. Yeah, that was so... I just remember being uh, so obsessed with your set because you did like 40 minutes or something. Yeah, I think it was a headliner that night, yeah. Yeah, and I I was just like, I've never seen anything like this, <laughs> you know? And uh, so you're... Now you've seen so much of it. You're like, what? <laughs> what are we doing? No, I feel, like, here? I feel like you're so good at the long set. Like, oh, thank you. And you've been doing comedy for a long time. 
I have. I was just, I was one of those kids who was like super into comedy when I was like in high school, like junior high and middle school and high school. Like I, I like would watch every special on Comedy Central Presents. I watched like that Dana Carvey Critics Choice special, like memorized that. My mom would always buy like those like truck stop tapes of like Jeff Foxworthy and stuff like that. And we listened to that on the way to like, so we would have like these like little like mini road trips and we listened to those stand up albums. And so I was just like, I just devoured it. And I started, like, really getting obsessed in, like, the 90s with, like, Dave Chappelle. It was I had, like, the, the Daves, because they were, like, Dave Chappelle, David Spade, David Cross, all three had HBO specials that I loved. Yeah. And I remember watching the David Spade one, and I think it was called Take the Hit. And I remember, like, watching it and saying out loud, I'm going to be a stand-up comic. And then I was 19, wow. I was in college, and I was, like... Once I'd, like, gotten settled in college, my, my freshman year, I had been going to, like, a faraway branch campus, like, a, a commuter school, so I wasn't, like, in town enough to, like, find the comedy scene, but then, like, my schedule changed. I was only driving to school twice a week, and I had some more free time during the week, so I was like, I, I if I don't do it now, I might never do it, mm-hmm. so I, like, looked up where, like, the club in town was having their, like, open mic and stuff like that, and they had, like, a showcase thing. And they had this cool setup where you went in an hour before, like, when their show was supposed to be, and you did, like, a workshop. So it was almost like open mic in L.A. where there was, like, nobody there but comics. Right. But except for it was supposed to be supportive. So you would go in, and <laughs> people would be, like, sitting around. And then if you, like, wanted to go up and just work on a couple of bits, you would go up and you would do it. And then people would, like, give you feedback on the material. And so I did that. And the idea of this was that if you were new... The idea was that you would build until you had a solid five minutes and then you would do the show. Unless you brought a bunch of people the first time, then you would go on the show regardless. But so that was what happened. And so it took me about a month to, to move from there to the main show. Um, but or maybe a couple of months, actually. And I think I, I don't think I moved from that until the show at that club until they started doing those comedy contests and I joined that. But off of that first spot. People started telling me, hey, there's an open mic near High State Campus you can go to. I, this one guy's like, I'm doing a show in this, this other town. Like, do you want to come do a spot on this, like, like this other suburb of, of Columbus where I'm from, uh, this town called Hilliard? He's like, We're doing, I'm doing a comedy show in this billiard bar. Do you want to, like, come do five minutes? And then I brought, like, my whole family out to see it, which was a bad idea. But, oh, uh, they were super supportive. But, yeah, I just started doing spots. And next thing I knew, I was doing it. And, and also, like... That spring, I entered that contest which I finally got on the main stage at the Funny Bone, and I lost the contest. <coughs> Excuse me. And I lost the contest because I took my... Hey, I need water. <laughs> Are you getting emotional about losing the contest? I'm getting for clip. No, I have, a, I have like a little, like... I, I ate like a... One of those, like, Trader Joe's PB&J granola bars on the way here. Oh. And it had, like, gotten smashed in my bag, so it was all crumbs. So it's like one random crumb just found its way to the back of my throat oh in the middle gosh. of the town. So I entered the contest in the spring and I lost. And the reason why I lost was because I took my set list on stage with me. I glanced at it at one point during my set. Ugh. And like one of, the, one of the judges told me, he was like, you had hands down the best set of the night, but we disqualified you because you had your set list out on stage. And he's like, and if you had been, he's like, if you're, the idea of this contest is like the winner may, may move on to be like a performer at the club. And like, we don't want to book you to host a show at the club and then have you looking at your notes during your hosting set. So that was like, so that was like a really early thing for me where I now have like a, I now have a bit of a like mental block against having a set list on stage. Um, And 
But I came back in the fall and second kind of the contest and I actually won. So I'd only been in comedy like six months and I like got named the funniest person in Columbus and I got like booked to host, start hosting at the club. You had the natural talent. Yeah. I don't know what happened to it, but I, it, did, it was, I did, I had this strange like meteoric rise in that era of my life where like I definitely like leapfrogged a lot of the people who had been doing comedy in the city at that point for a while and kind of like went right from like starting to hosting and made a lot of enemies that way because I was like way younger than everybody else mm-hmm. and some of them had been doing comedy like four or five years and were like in their mid to late 20s and here I was this 19 year old kid like I'm working at the club like it was that kind of thing <laughs> but you know so there was definitely a point in my life where I got a little bit cocky like I'm just gonna blow up I'm gonna be this huge big comedy star and then I kind of like got really stuck in that middle area for like I think I'm still there so like I, I but same, I definitely same. yeah the middle air area is a long road yeah and I'm, I, <laughs> well and also like so I I always thought in my mind that I would just follow this natural course of like uh, let, me, let, me, let, me wait, let me wait for that plane to go by before I how are you doing we're just gonna roll on and okay. listeners are gonna hear okay. all the natural ambient yeah. sounds gotcha. I will stop sound engineering your podcast and let you it's, it's not tell as, me if you need me to stop okay talking. yeah it's not as bad as the the convo because yeah. then I'm hearing other people talking alright because I've been on like a lot of movie sets where like a plane goes by and we're like hey everyone has to stop yeah <laughs> there's like a guy holding a boom so, yeah, I, I kind of, like, at that point in my life, really, like, thought I had this specific tr- career trajectory of, like, okay, so I, now I'm a house MC, uh, I would go MC a couple other clubs, and I thought, okay, so, like, in a year or two, I'll be road featuring, and then after a while, I'll work with that, and then I'll be headlining, and then that'll be, like, my career. And then, like, maybe I'll move to L.A. and start auditioning for stuff. That was, like, it seems so clear to me. And then it just, like, didn't click. And I, I one of the reasons why is that I was a little bit self-destructive in that, I am someone who, especially back then, more so than now, I was really arrogant about my writing. And I was very much someone who, like, didn't work on her act as much, her performance, and just focused, like, the writing is so good, that's all that's going to matter. But then because I was such a writer, writer, comic, I also would get bored of my jokes really quickly, and I would, like, write new material. And so it got to a thing where I was kind of, like, having a harder time getting bookings because... I now was, like, super inconsistent. Like, like one of the managers said to me a couple years later, and I wish someone had said it to me when it was, like, first the problems, so like, of course corrected then, because it took, like, years for someone to say it to me. They go, you'll show up, and you'll have these brilliant jokes, and then we'll never hear them again. The next time you hear, you're doing some brand new thing that's not as good. Yeah, well, sometimes you feel, like, as a new comic, like, I've got to have new stuff all the time. Like, mm-hmm. no no one can hear the same joke twice. Yeah. And, like, this was before the era of uh, He Who Should Not Be Named being, like, I write a new hour every year, and I do a new hour. Like, that was quite a little bit before then, but there was still that thing of, like, oh, it's always fresh and different and interesting. And part of that was because... Some of those comics who've been around for five, six, seven years, I always saw the exact same set from them every time they went on stage. And they'd constantly have, like, issues where they, like, struggle with the crowd. And if the crowd wasn't into what they were doing, they'd have no way to course correct because they only had their act and that was it. Yeah. And I wanted to pride myself on having a little bit more variety. But the problem was I never, like, gave stuff a chance to grow and develop and become its own thing. So... It took me a while to get used to that. And it was all also, like, I was so arrogant and I was so focused on my writing as, like, being the thing that I was a genius at, you know, so full of myself. And 
I moved out to LA right after college. So this is like 2005. So I've only been doing comedy about six years. Hadn't really moved anything beyond like occasionally middling. And somehow I was like, I'm gonna go to LA and get a staff writer on a TV show. And I like left, I like saved up some money. I drove out here after college and then I did nothing for like a month and a half until I ran out of money and then I moved back to Ohio. Um, And so that like was a real like tail between my legs kind of moment and really like felt like the first time I was like knocked down by this business. And, but it wasn't even the business. It was my own lack of planning and my own lack of, like, ambition once I got here. I got you so overwhelmed. You were pretty young, too, though. Yeah. Like, a lot of people have that exact same experience at, like, 30. Yeah. Well, it was just, like, yeah, I was or young 40. and starry-eyed. And yeah. it was, like, me being, like, this is going to be easy. Everyone's going to see my genius. Like, I definitely was, like, what a, what a arrogant, like, fuck off. Um, yes, I came out here and just, you know, I, I think I thought it was going to be easier than it was. I think I thought that I had this, like, trajectory that was going to keep continuing. And then when it didn't happen, I felt very defeated. I remember, like, there was a while where I got back to Ohio, and I was, like, super lost in comedy. I had no idea what I was doing anymore. And it took me a while, and then I eventually moved, tried, tried to try to move again to New York. And that one, I think, would have lasted longer if the situation with where I was staying hadn't fallen through. Like, there was basically someone offered me, like, a like, deal that was too good to be true and ended up actually being too good to be true. And... I, I, was, I was basically supposed to be offered a place to stay rent-free until I could find my own job, my own place, or, like, until they got sick of me. But, like, it was, like, the person who offered it to me, someone had done that for them, and they were, like, I'm just going to pay it forward and let you, you can crash on my couch until you need... That's and, like, rad. As long as you're looking for a job, looking for a place to stay, you can stay. If you're just here and you're freeloading, you can't stay. The week I was leaving for New York, suddenly he was nowhere to be found and, like, invisible and, like, I couldn't find him, couldn't get a hold of him or anything. And so then, like, I didn't have a... I didn't know where I was going or anything. Mm. So then I, a friend of mine from college let me stay with them, him and his fiance, and I was on their couch, which was not comfortable being like, oh yeah, I'm sharing an apartment with two people who are like getting married and yeah. like, you know, it's their, it's not a very big apartment. So, and they were charging me weekly rent, which wasn't like, like astronomical, but it was still like going from Hard not, to do. yeah. And like, so it was eating away at my funds and the, I was trying to get work as a temp and then like I had gotten a couple of like a few, a few weeks of temp work and then my temp agent went on vacation and didn't tell me and like none of her like like if I if when I called in I was given another agent to talk to but like up and no one was working on my behalf while she was gone so I had like three weeks where I didn't have any work because she like wasn't preparing when she was gone and she was gone and she like finally she was gone for like two weeks so like great so I had no money so I ended up coming back to, I, I had a moment there where I like looked at my, my finances and I was like I can either, I had, I had enough money that I could like, if I wanted to find an apartment, I could pay my, my first and last month's rent and I have one month to find a job and get paychecks and stay. And I was like, that's so scary. And I'll think I'll, like, even if I got a job, I might not get enough money paid in time to pay my rent when it's due. So I was like, or you can go back to Ohio with that, like $1,200 or whatever and, and, and have some money and go back and start doing the road again. But what I will say is that when I went to New York, I started having really good sets and like my shows in New York were doing really good. And so I had this mentality because I I had been like, I'm not doing great with comedy these days, but I was like, I'm having really good shows in New York city. So like, there's obviously something about what I'm doing that's working. Mm -hmm. And so when I went back from New York to Ohio, it was much less of a defeated vibe and more of like a, okay, I see what I can be doing if I work harder. And so let's just get focused on that. And so then I started, like, getting better. And then I also, around that time, I started, like, clicking a lot more with 
how important my performance actually was on stage. And I think I actually made like a um, paradigm shift from being a comic who focused on her writing into being a comic who focused on her performance. And I don't actually, it's funny because I used to sit down and just fill up notebooks with writing and I don't even do that at all anymore. I can't remember the last time I sat down and like wrote a joke out in a notebook because yeah. I write on stage now yeah. and it's like so much more in the moment. And, spark- and part of that's just from experience of doing it for so long that like my writing process has gotten more internalized. So I'm still doing the things I was doing before, but now I'm doing them in the moment as opposed to, it's like, it's like when you learn to play a video game and you're no longer like thinking about pressing A or B, you're just like reacting to the game. Totally. And so, yeah, and that was around the time, because that was like 2007, 2008-ish, and I like started working a lot harder, and I started getting a lot more honest on stage and doing a lot more personal material, and so then around that time is when I like realized, oh, I, I have to come out as trans, or I can't keep doing honest material, and so I like, that was tough, that was really scary. Wow, so the comedy kind of pushed that. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. And it used to be the opposite. It used to be comedy was keeping me from doing it, because mm. like... I, sure. the work I was, like I said, I, I didn't move into this club middle act area. And maybe, maybe it's like good that I didn't because if I had been like working steady as a middle act, I might've mm. stayed in the closet for a lot longer because I, the gigs I was doing at the time were a lot of these like one nighter gigs, like in yeah. small towns in the middle of nowhere. And they, they, they paid barely enough money to make a living off of. I had to, I had to like substitute teach and stuff in Ohio to make ends meet and occasionally work a part-time job or whatever. But I remember, like, coming back from one of those gigs and having, like, a moment. I was driving through Indianapolis at, like, 3 in the morning, driving back from a gig. And I remember going, like, is this the gig that I'm afraid I'm going to lose if I come out? And, like, that was kind of, like, the moment, like, no, I don't care if I lose this job. I don't care if I don't get to do those gigs anymore. And that's when I, about when I came out. And that was 2009. And then I moved to L.A. about nine months later. Wow. Yeah. So I moved to L.A. in 2010. I've been out here ever since. Yeah, that's interesting about like com- like how if you're working on the road and stuff, it can kind of minim it can kind of in some ways make you kind of minimize uh, your honesty because you're trying to appeal to everybody. But mm-hmm. you know, if you're trying to be arty in the cities and stuff, you're trying to like really push it and get it to be honest. And I have honestly been having a hard time with that lately because I just feel like. Um, as a comedian, I'm like, there's so much shit going on in my head and going mm-hmm. on in the world that I'm just like, how could I make my comedy catch up to any processing of... Yeah, I'm having a lot of that, too. I would say, like, especially since 2016, I feel like there's just, like, so much frustration and fear. Yeah. <clears throat> it's so much harder for me to, like, put aside my fears and just write funny stuff anymore. Like, I'm still getting stuff done, but, yeah... Excuse me, my writing has definitely taken a strange, like, backseat a lot. And yeah, and I feel like I get on stage and I'm like, I guess I'll just make people laugh about gender or whatever because I'm not going to joke about, like, you know, detention centers or climate change yeah. or Donald Trump or, like, um, I just, like, don't really think it's fun or funny or like I don't know how to spin anything into an interesting way that a comedy audience like yeah so yeah I've seen like I mean I've never been a very political comic anyway I mean it's funny because people always call me an activist just because I'm like openly trans yeah that makes me an activist (laughs) you're like default and I'm like no there's real activists who actually work their asses off totally yeah but 
Um, I, you know, I talk about being trans on stage because that's the lens by which I view the world. But yeah. even that, I'm not doing as much as I used to. I mean, there's like important representation stuff, and but like, and like the personal can be political. Yeah. But like being outwardly like, yeah, John Stewart or something is like another. Yeah, I think it takes a special talent to do that. And I'm even finding, like, I, I don't want to speak for everybody because, like, every, I think that every kind of comedy can work somewhere and by someone. But I think that, like, I'm finding that even just, like, listening to shows, not just, like, doing them myself, I find that I'm seeing like, even, like, really talented comics who I think are really funny when they start doing a bit about the, like, stressful things happening right now, the crowd kind of shuts down a little yeah. bit because, like, it's, like... Everyone is just so collectively traumatized right now yeah. by this stuff that, like, it's. I don't want to say they're triggered, but I feel like there is a mode of, like, oh, you just reminded me of how dark the world is right now. Yeah. And, yeah. It's hard. It's almost like you have to compartmentalize. And I, I find that I have that even in co- casual conversations. Like, yesterday, we were talking about, like, how hot the East Coast has been and how hot Europe has been. And I just was like, climate change. And I just said that. Mm-hmm. And then everyone just got, like, so quiet. And I'm like, uh, I don't want to say climate change and I don't want to bring everyone down, but yeah. it's weird because we're already all thinking it and it's like weird because it's almost like a Voldemort sort of thing where it's like, which is so funny because climate change itself was like, it was supposed to be the more easy to use term. Like it like replaced global warming and became the more like digestible term. And even now yeah. it's kind of become politicized and like terrifying to hear and say. I wonder what we could call it that would make it digestible enough. I mean, I know. I wish I knew what it was. Because, like, even I, like, I have a joke that addresses it quickly, and I even did, like, an ad-lib on Wednesday night where I made it a little bit more, like, climate-specific. And, it like, I remember, like, the flow was great, and then I made this one comment, and the crowd was like, oh. Yeah. I, I, I had this joke that I've been doing about... I got injured last year on a bird scooter, and I, my joke is about how... It's weird to have a permanent scar from a technology that's not going to last. And so, like, the joke is, like, I have to, and in a couple of years, I'm going to have to explain what a bird scooter was to explain my injury. And then, like, I do, like, a riff where I'm, like, explaining this injury I got from a pager. And the joke is that I keep getting more and more, like, people don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Like, I'm like, yeah. pagers sell. I'm like, you used to call people on a payphone. Oh, a payphone was when you had to call someone. People used to call people people used to communicate and like it like just goes on and on and then like wow. at the end of that I go there used to be people and that <laughs> gets a laugh but then I ad-lib but we loved plastic too much and it ruined it everything ruined it for all of us or something yeah. and when I said that we love plastic too much like done like it was like and maybe it just wasn't a funny line but like it was just like it was like a snap like I might as well have like turned off the volume of the audience at that moment it was really strange yeah um so how have you been doing comedy and having fun and staying creative since 2016? Um, I haven't actually been, it's weird. I haven't been doing as much stand-up as I used to. I've kind of, I mean, like I did for a little while. I had a couple of like good runs and like I did like up until like last year, I was doing like a lot of festivals like in Portland and stuff like that. Like I, and I'm still doing them, but like I, I did the Portland Queer County Festival two years in a row. I took this year off. Same with the All Jane Festival. That one I think I might have done like three years in a row. So I took this year off. I was there one one year with you. Yeah. I've only done it that one time. I've done it, I think, five times now. I think I did like two years on, one year off. And then I think I did three years on only because uh, last year I was like 
part of the like selection committee of people who were like picking comics, which I'm not supposed to, I'm not sure I'm supposed to say at this point, but I, it was been a year. I think we're fine. Um, but and part of like me doing that was like I was automatically part of the festival too. So that was like like my, my payment for doing that work was being able to go Stage to the festival. Time. Yeah. So um, donuts. Yeah, it was nice. So. But I was doing low carb then, so I didn't get to enjoy. No, uh, <laughs> that's actually when I got hurt. Was when I was in Portland, like that, during that festival, was when I fell and hurt my knee. Um, oh no! But when I when I first became a, a vegetarian, I would still eat meat on the road. <laughs> and I told this comedian, he was like, "We went through Arby's." He was like, "Do you eat meat?" And I was like, "Only on the road." <laughs> I feel like that's my like. Me and my spouse have an agreement that I'm allowed to. Nah, that's <laughs> funny. So but I have to call vegetables and tell them what I ate when I get home, <laughs> when I get back to the hotel. And... They'd rather just not know, to be honest. Yeah, but I've been getting into doing a lot of, like, uh, like tabletop role-playing games as live streams. Oh, um, okay. So I'm a, By the I'm way, a... my boyfriend is gone right now because he's off doing a D&D. Oh, nice. He, he leaves for a few hours every Saturday. Oh, I love having a game at regular... He's playing D and D, or he's cheat. I kind of hope he's just cheating on me. Oh no! Oh come on! Uh, I love I love my D and I'm on I'm on a D and D show. Like I'm on like on D and D's channel. Oh wow! Yeah. There's a channel. Yeah, they I have, didn't, a, they have I didn't a Twitch channel. Oh, Twitch, D&D. Twitch. No, it's fine. Everyone does. Uh, it's, it's a little hanging fruit. Um, I I think it's yeah. wonderful though, because he says that he actually started doing it because he was listening to Imaginary Worlds. Okay. And they did a D&D episode where he was like, I never explored this as a kid, even though I wanted to because I was trying to be cool. Yeah. So now I'm doing it in my 40s. And it's kind of like a similar thing of like, mm-hmm. kind of like letting that repressed nerd child out. There's a really great documentary that my friends just made. My friends who were at Screen Junkies, they... Um, well, I guess it's for fandom, but whatever. Um, but they're the same company. But they made this series. They have a series called Fandom Uncovered, and each like each time they go through like a aspect of fandom and like dig deep into it. And so the D and D one, they actually rec- they filmed it at D and D's live event back in May, and some other times around that. But and they, they kind of go into a lot of that. People talking about like wishing they'd done when they were younger, getting into it as an adult, and like finding they loved it. People who did it when they were younger. And then feeling they had to quit doing it at one point because it was, like, nerdy. And then, like, find their way back to it. And some people who never quit doing it. So it's really interesting. And what's appealing to me... So I'm on a show on D&D's Twitch channel that's coming back soon for Season 3. And I'm on a regular show on Wednesday nights on Hyper RPG's Twitch channel, which is based on this comic book called Rat Queens. And so those are two things that I'm doing. Plus I'm doing this, like, Doctor Who role-playing game podcast. So I have three shows right now that are all, like, role-playing games. Wow, fun. And it, yeah, it's really, really been this interesting, like, diversion to my career in the last year or so because it it's still performing. And most, most of it's still, like, a lot of room for making jokes and being funny. But it's almost, like, the same reason why people do improv. Because it is very improv-based. And... But it's like you're with, you're with a group and you're all working together to collectively tell this like shared story. And there's just something about when the table like comes together in this really interesting story and you do these fun things with characters. So we just did a live show in Indianapolis for this, uh, this convention called Gen Con, which is a huge gaming convention that's been around for like 30 years. And they, um, or maybe longer than that actually, but they, um, 
they, I'm sure it's way longer. I'm sure someone right now is like a fan of it. It's like, it's been around for 36 years. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> so Gen Con, we went to, we went to Gen Con and, and performed Raz Rat Queens. And like to do that for like a live audience and get like energy from the room, it's, it was as good as doing like a live stand-up show and having like that crowd fire or whatever. So. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. Yeah. And I think there's something to the escapism right now. Talking about the things that are stressing us out about the world. Like, yeah. it's like kind of, it kind of feels nice to be able to go, oh, I'd love to be somewhere where my biggest enemy is a dragon that I can hit with a, with an axe instead of, like, there's yeah. a, a fireball that's going to destroy think, our entire planet. I think it's possible that, like, because I've been definitely leaning into fantasy and sci-fi mm-hmm. and even superhero stuff, which I've never done before, but then all the Marvel ex- extravaganza it's happened, and I had, I had to jump into that, and then I was into Game of Thrones and, and all of that, and I just think... Um, it might in some, and I've noticed these kind of like apocalyptic themes with Endgame and all of this stuff, where yeah. it's like really high, high stakes scenarios, and it's just like maybe the only way that people can process stuff right now, or mm-hmm. um, I don't know, I don't even know. I mean, I guess uh, one could argue that like escaping could be a bad thing, like escaping our reality, mm-hmm. but um, I I don't. I don't know. I think it might be a, a good way to process things and continue to be healthy and, uh, I don't know. I think that's what's interesting about role-playing games versus consuming media like movies or TV shows. As someone who does both and loves both, and I, I write about movies and TV shows for a living and I, for websites and stuff like that, but there is something about even when it's an imagined experience where you're like rolling dice and playing a character, there is still this feeling of participating and being involved. And so like, I think it's a little more therapeutic because it's, it, yes, it's escapism, but you are also like processing things as you're, and there's been, there's been like a couple of like articles about, and it's even mentioned in that video I was talking about the fandom uncovered thing where like, people who have had, like, behavioral issues or, like, traumas that they're working through a lot of times are more able to address them via the game. And then, as a result, they do heal and they do actually, like, are able to function more. And there's a lot of people, even in this documentary, there's people who talk about, like, how they have these, like, anxiety issues or they had, like, socializing issues and stuff like that and how, like, this community vibe and this, like, shared storytelling helped them work with that. And I think that's why I've been so drawn to it lately. And I'm, I hope it keeps going on. And, like, and I don't want to quit doing stand-up, but it is weird how, like, I haven't been doing as much as I used to be. And whenever I do it, I'm like, I'm like, I actually, it's funny because I don't do it enough anymore. So when I'm, like, booked on a show, sometimes I get a little bit anxious about the show. Like, oh, God, what if I forget what I'm doing? And, I, and it's fine. But I've had some pretty, like, I'm, I've been doing it long enough that I don't need to have that every night thing happening to stay, like, fresh. But yeah, it's always like I do get a little more anxious. I ahead never, of time. I never like before I go on stage. I'm like I don't know how I do stand up. Like I don't know how. And then I'm on stage and then I do it. Yeah. But it's like thinking about it outside of it is just like, um, uh, there's it's not helpful. Yeah, and the more <laughs> I overthink it, the worse it's gonna be. Usually. Yeah. Like if I go on stage and just start talking, then I'll do my whole act. But if I go yeah. on stage going, what's my material? Then I'm not gonna remember it when I'm oh, on stage. Oh, I know I'm having a bad set when I have like a whole second monologue happening in the back of my head. Yeah. And I can hear it so loudly, like, is this going okay? Okay, after yeah. this, should you do the dog joke or? 
Yeah, that's never a good sign. Well, like when I got in trouble for having that set list on stage my first year in, my first few months in, the way that I solved it was I still wrote a set list out, but I put it in my back pocket mm. when I when I used to wear pants that had pockets. But I would, I would go on stage with my pockets, and I would have them in my back pocket, and I would never need to pull it out because I knew that it was there. you could absorb it through your butt. Exactly. I would, I would butt speak. I've been known um, to, to have a little key on my uh, hand mm-hmm. by my wrist, uh, which is very subtle. No one ever knows. Very elegant. No one ever notices it when it happens. <laughs> they probably think never... it's a tattoo that says, like... You're going to be fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> peaceful or something. I, well, I've always seen comics who think they're clever hiding their set list on stage. Like, I remember a guy who used to, like, put it on his beer label. And, like, I'm like, yeah, but you're looking at your beer in the middle of your set. Like, does the crowd think you're suddenly really concerned about the ingredients of Budweiser? Like... But for me, I never even looked at it. Like one, once I had it in my back pocket, it like gave me that confidence of like, if I forget a bit, I've got my list right here. But knowing that was happening, I never forgot the bits anymore because I knew that I had a list if I had to check it. So I was yeah. confident. And I think that like that's the mentality of like going on stage. Yeah, if you have the monologue, that means that you're doubting yourself and you're not like into it. But if you just go on stage and you're like, I know what I'm, I know what I'm gonna do fine, and like you you usually do do okay. So. Yeah. Well, do you feel like um, when you do stand up now that like, you know, you you try to like joke about the plastic and all that, but do you feel like, um, like it's feeling good and relevant to you? Like, or maybe a little less so? Um, aside from that plastic joke, I think that I've never been as concerned about relevance on stage because I'm always, I'm already coming from such a foreign point of view for the audience that like, for me, it's more about like making them realize that like the things that I deal with are the things that they, they can relate to and they can deal with as well. And because my act has been so personal for so long, I feel like I don't need to keep it as like current event relevant because it's more just like about my feelings and my emotions and where I'm at. So... That hasn't how, been how, what are your feelings and your emotions and where you're at? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> it's more about like when I'm talking about like the actual subject matter, sure. and I need to be a little better about like doing that because like I've like I've been dating someone since December, and Ooh. Uh, <laughs> she she doesn't live here. She you wouldn't know her. She's from Canada. No, she, <laughs> I met her in my hometown when I was home doing like holiday shows over Christmas break last year. Christmas break, like I'm still in college. Your eyes are getting sparkly. Uh, I really like her. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I met her at a show, and so you know, I've been writing a little bit of material about, about dating. But it's like, it's it's so hard to like not fall back and just like set up punchline vibe that like you really want to like share. And then I don't really think that we have any like we have we don't have any stories that are like stage relevant yet, or like I have a couple, but then I always like ruin it by tossing a gag into it. So that's actually where I'm like I'm actually struggling more than I used to be to write a joke about something happening in my life because. There was a while there, whenever anything happened in my life, I almost had the joke ready to go. Yeah. But I think because there's another person involved, and so, like, her perspective matters and, like, is important to me, I feel a little less, like, like I, I, I wouldn't want to write a mean joke about our dating and then have her hear it and have her feelings get hurt by it. So that's, like, a little bit of a filter in my head about it. But, um, not, not, like, not that, like, my thoughts about her are mean, but, like, if I'm just going for the punchline... Of course, of course. It might come out mean. And, like, I don't want I don't want to hurt her feelings. So it's, like, a little bit... I'm a little bit hamstrung in that regard right now. Aww. But, um, yeah. Because, like, a lot of like, you know, if I was, like... We only see each other, like, about once a month right now, uh, which has been great. Like, she's been able to actually travel a lot, which has been good. And, like, I, I've gone home twice since we started dating. I went home in May for a funeral, and I got to see her when I was there. 
Um, I went home after Gen Con a few weeks ago, and I was because like, Indianapolis and Columbus are like three hours apart, so I got to see her when I did that trip. And she's come out, uh, I want to say four times already, or three or four, three, I think. She's come out to visit three times and coming out for her fourth this month. So we oh, see each other sweet. a lot for having been long distance and meeting just a few months ago, about six months, eight months ago at this point. But um, I think once we spend more time together and we actually have like stories together, then I'll be able to take it to the stage a little more than I am right now. But right now I'm kind of in that whole like, I don't have any jokes about it because like, hey, I met this person and they're in my life and they're great. And it's like, there's no joke. You're just like, like but geez. what sucks about it? Yeah. <laughs> and like, I don't want to think about it in those regards right now. So it's hard to, because like, that's not naturally where my head is going with it. Like, um, and the thing is like, she's a lot younger than me. So I'm sure that's probably going to be like where the material comes from eventually. Sure. But like, I, I, I don't know how I feel. I mean, like, hey, I'm robbing the cradle. Like, I don't know how, like, yeah. you know, I mean, she's not like a child, but like, she's 25. <laughs> but like, it is, it is weird sometimes when like, I'm like, oh my God, I, like she mar- very much makes me feel old. Like, I literally made a joke about a Beatles song to her and she knows the Beatles. Like one of her favorite songs is the Beatles song. So I made a joke about the song eight days a week and she's like, I don't know that song. What are we talking about? It's the Beatles song. And she's like, is it? And I, there was a half second where I was like, am I in yesterday? Like, am I living oh, the plot of yesterday? Yeah. Yeah. I have a pretty significant age difference in my relationship, too. But you're on the other way, right? I'm on the other side. Yeah. yeah. Is it is it weird? Like, do you, or do you, like, not think about it most of the time? You know what? I don't think about it most of the time, but, like... It's weird because when we were f- first started dating, I didn't like think about it at all. Mm-hmm. I was like, "He's a little older, but we're just yeah. we're just being freaky freaks." That's how but she then, that's how she goes, I think. With yeah, because it's like mm, variety is the spice of life, right? <laughs> yeah. But n- now that we're in in it a little deeper and we're living together, I'm like, "Am I gonna have to like <laughs> visit you in a home? Like, how <laughs> is this? like there is." But he's kind of healthier than me, so I'm not really worried about that. But there is a little bit of weirdness in terms of, like, um, sometimes I'm like, well, if we want to start a family, but then I'm like, probably won't, so no worries. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's one thing It's like, for me, like, since starting a family, like, as, as the older partner, because she has made it very clear that, like, within the next 10 years, she wants to, like, adopt a child if she can. But, like, I think the fact that we're talking about adopting, because we're two women, so it's like, one, she doesn't want to carry the baby. I physically can't carry a baby. Um, I'm sterile anyway because of my hormones and stuff and, and, like, surgeries that I've had. So, like, um, we would have to adopt. So at least, like, the physical elements of having children, except for, like, the energy elements of it, but... Um, I could probably be a little bit healthier, so I should probably get on that. If I know, I'm, right? If Maybe I have we a should kid start hiking yeah. or something. Because <sighs> kids have to play. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many kids that need to be adopted. I always feel like it's so weird that everyone's so obsessed with ad- adopting dogs. But, <laughs> like, and you're, like, the devil if you buy a dog. But you're not the devil if you, like, biologically have a child. I don't know. Some people, yeah. And, well, also, like, adopting is strangely, like, really hard to do. Yeah, like, that's for, true. I mean, it, I mean, not strangely in that, like, it should be a little bit tough because, like, it, it should make sure that kids have, like, a good home. But there's, like, a whole racket to adoption. There's, like, all these totally. agencies that you have to, like, work within. And it's hard for, like, queer parents to adopt children. So, like, I am a little nervous how that's going to shake out. Like, I have two women, first of all, one of them being trans. Like, I'm not sure how. And then you have to out. have the right economic situation. Yeah, which like right now, I I don't even have pets right now. I like to have pets, but I don't. But like, 
I'm even like, I'm not sure I could have a cat right now because I'm not home enough to take care of it. Yeah, if so, you're not home enough to take care of a cat, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, and I, so I definitely like if we're going to have a kid, like, I would probably have to, like, be a stay-at-home mom and, like, do my writing at home and, like, not have my day job so I could take care of a kid, but... Whenever I think about having a kid, I'm like, I'd have a kid if I adopted it but then also had a full-time nanny. And then I'm like, well, if it's not biologically mine and I'm not even raising it, how is it? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> what's the point? Yeah. I can see that fear. Yeah. <laughs> like... Because I, I, yeah, I would need a lot of help. I get very tired. So, maybe not. Anyway, having children, how do you feel about, I mean, I guess if you're adopting a child, it's like, like, any kid needs, you know, a home, they're already here and stuff. But how do you feel about, like, raising a, a child in this uh, time period? Does that frighten you at all? Or It does, but like I said, like, like, like he said, they're already here. It's not like you're bringing a new child into the world. You're giving a space to a child that needs help Absolutely, and needs yeah. love. So I think that, like, like and, I, and I have, a, like, one of my exes was adopted, and I have, like, some close friends who were adopted. So I definitely, like, know how important adoption can be in the lives of a child. Um, so I, that element of it, like, I think that, like, if I was in a good financial place, I think that I would be okay with that aspect of it because, like, again, like, it's not the same as, like, I don't think it's the same philosophical debate with yourself of do I want to bring a child into this world? Totally. As it is like, I, like this world needs, this, these kids need help. Yeah. Need someone to take care of them. Absolutely. Um, so my last question, I guess, is just like, um, how, how are you, like, how are you, aside from comedy, interacting with like uh, the political world or just like your social circle or the environment like how are you processing are you cha- are you chatting with people about it or um, how, how is that going feeling for you I'm, I'm touch and go on it um, I kind of come in and out of things I, I definitely like want to be invested in stuff and so I try to like when I have the money I try to like donate to causes and I try to like amplify and signal boost and things like that um, I probably could be better at like actually volunteering my time and stuff, which is like, I'm like, what time? Like as much as that, much as I'm like, what money do I have? I'm even more so like, what time do I have? But also there's an element of it where I have had to kind of like check out of some stuff. And, I, and that sounds, I, I feel, I hate saying that cause it sounds so privileged, but it's also like the only way that I can even like process a day is by like letting myself enjoy the things that I enjoy because otherwise like I just get so brought down by stuff. And, like, I, I'm, I'm so scared of what the future could be like if things continue down the path they're on. That, like, I may not have a like there, There's a really good chance that, like, if things continue this path, like, the world will get way darker for somebody like me really fast. Just based on, like, what's already happened so far. That there is part of me. It's like, you better get your joy while you can because yeah. you may not be able to in, like, ten years. And... I hate that feeling. So I, I want to, like, be part of the solution of making it better. And so, like, but, like, I feel like I, I feel like all the things I'm doing, like, I feel like, okay, so now I have a metal straw in my purse, and now I carry a reusable cup, and now I carry a reusable coffee mug. And it, it, it's one of those things where, like, yeah, I feel real great that I'm doing this, but I also feel like it's not actually doing any good. Like, I feel like it's, like, it's doing such a minor percentage of good, and for all the, like, feelings that I have of, like, now I'm helping fix it, there's some company who's just churning out waste that's, like, 
dwarfing anything that I could possibly do. And I hate that helpless feeling. And I hate the way that, like, people who are going to be dead for decades before things really get bad are just, like, funneling money into making it worse and worse because they're never going to feel the consequences. And, I, you know, talking about this idea of, like, children in the world, it's like I don't know how anybody who has kids can be so careless with what they're leaving behind for their kids. Like, I just don't know. I, I, I get – I can understand – to some degree, someone being a greedy old bastard if they don't have any kids or any offspring. But it's like, like, how do you like even like begin to have paternal instincts, but also be like, well, I need another billion dollars, so screw Myanmar or whatever. It's like, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I think of it as kind of like a Cersei Lannister kind of thing. Like, I'll burn the rest of the world and keep my children in power mm -hmm. sort of thing. So it's like... Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Like, they're like, well... I'm like stop. I'm like hoarding the money so that I can build the house and the vaults that my kids will live in when the sun is too hot to go outside. <laughs> but yeah, it's just so short sighted, and it's so it's just so it like makes me sick to think about it sometimes. And like I, I don't think that we as a cult. I I actually have this theory about humanity that we're garbage. No, I think that people are. <laughs> I think that humans are a more adaptive race than we are a preparative race. Like, I think that, like, as a species, like, I think that, like, I don't think that we're good. I mean, like, from what I, what my interpretation of the way that we're not ready for this, like, individual people will have a plan and, like, organizations might have a plan and things to do. But as a whole, as a culture, we tend to react to things more than we, like, prepare for things. Because if we were a more preparative race... Like, uh, we, I think we would already have, like, solved a lot of our issues with, like, race and stuff because we already know, like, hey, we have to put these aside and focus on these other issues. But the fact, like, we would also go, like, we, we would be able to look at, like, situations like the concentration camps that we have right now at the border and, like, we would go, hey, this is going to have horrific, like, first of all, it's on its own level, it's horrific. It's people are being treated like animals. It's, 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 it's shameful it's just a nightmare but like even even if you don't care about it from that humanity level from the empathy level which is you should and if you don't i don't understand i don't know how to make people realize they have to care about other people like i don't know how to do that but like like i remember i i'm, I'm digressing a lot right now i feel like even if you don't know how to make yourself care about those people I don't know how you don't go, even if I don't have any empathy for those people in any way, shape, or form, this will still be disastrous for the future because you're creating an entire generation of people who are going to be radicalized. Highly traumatized. Highly traumatized. Highly traumatized. And also, like, organized and radicalized and ready to take out their anger. And, like, think about, like what young angry white men do in America right now and they're angry is mow people down. What are you going to do when you have a whole like generation of young men who have been like treated? And I'm not saying, I don't want to like single out one thing, but like a whole generation of a culture that's been just like abused and traumatized and treated. So if, even if you don't care, you still should be afraid of it and you should still want to like not make that the case. Yeah. We seem to like have the capability to say, like, oh, this might be a problem. Like, Thomas Jefferson even said, like, oh, America's going to have a huge race problem in the future. Yeah. And then it's like, should you... I mean, you're Thomas... You're in a pretty good place to do yeah. some stuff. Do you want to... 
Yeah, they actually kicked the element of slavery down the road for future governments to deal with instead of when they were making a new government, instead of making that a thing we just got rid of now. Like they let they, and that's why the Civil War happened because the founding fathers didn't think that they should deal with with slavery yet, and that's that's exactly it. Like it's just, yeah. I just, ugh. I saw I saw someone post this video of this little girl talking about losing her her parents just being gone. I think they, I think they were part of that Mississippi. I saw right? that too. Yeah. yeah. And somebody had said like, I wish we could make them all see this video, and this. Guy responded to it, like, I shared the same video, but my caption said, I wonder if her parents are still be around if they hadn't crossed the border legally or if they'd gone to their court date. And I'm like, well, first of all, if they'd gone to their court date, she probably would make the same video because they've been nabbing people at court dates. Yeah. Like, if you want people to go to their court dates, then you shouldn't arrest them when they show up at court. Yeah. Second of all, it's like, I don't know how to make people understand... Like, what would you do if you were on the other side of a wall and, and, and on that other side of the wall was food for your children? Would you really wait years for paperwork to go through or would you try to get to the other side of that wall where there's a, just a chance you could make a life for your family? Yeah. And I, 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 I think that we're so privileged as Americans that, like, even with the, the levels of homelessness that we have, I think that people don't understand what it's like to be desperate and have nothing. And they just can't even fathom it. And so in their mind, they have to like write all these rationalizations for why people behave the way they do and like oversimplify it and treat it like, oh, they just, like, like I, I, <laughs> I'm ranting now. I cannot believe the lack of empathy that people can have, that they can write off the most atrocious treatments of human beings simply by saying, well, they shouldn't have broken the law. Like, I just... It's such a, first of all, like, a, look, seeking asylum isn't illegal, but even if it was, it's like, that law, the punishment of that law shouldn't be indefinite detention in horrific conditions. And I just think about, like, they don't, they don't seem to make the connection that it's all being used to funnel, first of all, political gain, but also private prisons' profit margins. Like, if, if we really cared about making it legal for people to enter this country, instead of sending them, spending the money we spend every day to keep them detained, we'd spend that exact same money. And instead of sending down like prison guards, we'd send lawyers who could process their, their applications for citizenship yeah. or, or even just for visas and, and green cards and things like that. We would, we would send, instead of sending down corrections officers, we'd send judges. Like we could easily, you could easily, instead of having these courtrooms that are just like funneling people through them all day to send them back to where the country they came from, have those judges be there to process their applications. Like it's so doable and we just don't do it because we don't want to. And it's, it's horrific to me. And that whole, oh, they shouldn't have broken the law thing makes me so sick because, like, as everyone points out, the Holocaust was legal. But also, it's like, everybody breaks the law. Everybody speeds a little bit. Everybody fudges their taxes. Everybody does something illegal a little bit in their life. And, and it's like this idea that I'm not culpable for what I'm doing breaking the law, but this person who's, who's brown... Because they broke the law, I can make them not a human in my mind anymore. And it just makes me so sick to my stomach. I mean, I always think about, uh, I know we're, I'm like, I don't know where we're at time-wise, but. Um, um, we're like 53 minutes. Okay, away. so we can probably wrap it up. But I was just thinking about like, I'll, I'll, I'll end my rant with this point. Because I have not let you talk for a while and I'm sorry. No, uh, I'm fine. I think it's all good stuff. I think about when the Ferguson uprising happened and when like 
Mike Brown was murdered in the street and all that was happening. And there was this news story that, well, you know, he had robbed the convenience store. He had stolen a box of cigarillos and he'd threatened and he'd scared the clerk or whatever. He'd hit him even. I don't know. Whatever. And like, I don't know to this day if that ended up being proven true or false. That hurt both sides of it or whatever. But my perspective on the story is I don't care if it's true or false because stealing cigarillos from a store is a crime, but it's not punishable by death. Yeah. Like we as a country have a legal system. It's pretty of, barbaric. Yeah. We have due process. We have a system. So like if he stole cigarillos, then the, the result should have been he gets arrested and he gets a trial and he gets a, he gets a lawyer and all that. It's not he is shot down in the street by a terrified cop who can't handle a large teenage kid. Like it's just disgusting to me. And that's why, like, I think that ultimately I don't believe in the death penalty even when it's, like, someone who does a horrific crime because I have this mentality that our society should always be better than our worst people. So I think that if someone is 100%, like, even, like, this uh, El Paso shooter, you know, disgusting racist terrorist who ruined lives. He murdered, like, babies died because of this guy. I don't believe in death penalty for him because... I want our society to be better than him. And I think that when we do death penalty, the death penalty and that kind of stuff, we make ourselves there. And we also like open ourselves up to the idea that if you commit a crime, you being gunned down in the street is, is justifiable because you were a criminal. And I, I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, sorry. <laughs> Me too. Um, so yeah. Um, I don't even know how to transition out of that. <laughs> Things are just so fucked. I think yeah. this is the most fucked podcast also because I'm just like, let's just touch on things and then, uh, but I, I do think like having, just even having you here and having you say all this in my kitchen is like, it's really relieving to me because like I can like, you know, look at Instagram and Facebook and comment on things and, you know, have brief conversations with people, but like having someone kind of like, or just, like, to be able to connect with you on that, it, it is kind of, like, it does feel like the first barrier yeah. is, like, broken down in a way. It's not and just yelling at a wall somewhere. It's, like, having a face-to-face conversation with somebody about these things that are real yeah, feelings. Yeah, but at the same time, I'm, like, oh, I don't want, I don't want to um, affect anybody. I don't want to trigger anybody necessarily or, like, have... Yeah. So that that's kind of, like, what I struggle with right now is, like, in terms of, like you know, walking with people outside and then it's hot and then being like climate change, just yeah. be like, how do I connect without like, just like fucking shutting people down? Yeah. Totally. And, um, anyway, I hope that, I hope that you, um, live it up in <laughs> all of your, uh, our RPG fantasies and are happy and creative and also like, um, that your voice is heard on like all of these issues and that, uh, hopefully I have, I have some hope actually that we'll, we can, uh, steer things the other way. I think we will eventually, but I think that it's going to get worse before it gets better because like, that's part of my thing about humans being a reactive species. Like Mm. I think that we will have to, I, I think unfortunately, it's going to take it being undeniable before we can start working our way back. So it's going to be a lot of like trying to fix damage more. It's going to be preventing damage from happening, which is unfortunate because the yeah. planet doesn't deserve that. But 
Yeah, I And kind the people of, who are going to die don't deserve that. I kind of thought that the point we're at now was the undeniable point, but I guess... Yeah. I think it's because... We have to run out of food or something. I think, I think people's lives have to be... I think people in the positions of power... There lot, we go. Not lives have to be altered in a way. Like, yeah. right now, it's... Like, the East Coast flooding situation last year, like, I don't think people in that area have yet clicked that that happened because of climate change. And, like, the forest fires in California, you know, we have a president saying it's because we don't mop, we don't rake the grass, you know, the, the, the dead pine needles. It's like, there's always an easy explanation as to why, and so people aren't putting in their head that, like, no, this is because of this, and it needs to be fixed. So I don't know what needs to actually happen that people can go, oh, climate change is why these things are happening. And I think, unfortunately, the areas in the world that are being hit the hardest by it, like mm. rising waters and stuff like that, aren't, like, unfortunately, areas that, like, white people care enough about to do anything about yet. Which I, I like, I'm, and, like, Americans, like, that have the ability to, like, make institute change care enough about yet. Like, the fact that, like, so many people donated money to rebuild the Notre Dame like cathedral, and it's like, where is that? Why is that money not going to cleaning up the Pacific Plastic Island? Like, that cathedral's gonna get fixed. Don't worry, it's gonna get fixed. Yeah. So like, why are you like, why that's are you pouring your money out for that when there's a thing that needs this money and is not getting done? So yeah. Thank God for Tony Stark. Well, for uh, Robert Downey <laughs> Jr. <laughs> Gotta fix the world, man. Oh, yeah, I did see that. Yeah. What is he doing? He, like, started this, like... He's, like, becoming Tony Stark. Yeah, he's basically, like, using his image and his, like, his, like, panache to be part of, like, this footprint coalition. And the idea behind it is, like, using technology to, like, fix, like, the problems of the planet, so... Wow. Yeah. Rad. Well, thanks so much for doing this podcast. I hope I hope you feel okay. I do. I think I think I'm glad that I touched on the footprint coalition at the end. Now I feel like, oh yeah, here's a good example of something that is hopeful and someone who's trying to make things better. Yeah. Also, Morgan Freeman started a a bee a bee plant yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah. Bringing some bees back. Bring bring the bees back. It'll be in a spawning. Bring the bees. Um, is there is there anything comedy? First of all, thanks for thanks for doing this podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming to my uh, kitchen and chatting with me with the planes going on in the background. <laughs> I think you're a fabulous comedian. Thank um, you. Is there stuff you want to plug? Sure. When is this going to go out? Um, a week. Okay. Yeah. Uh, every Wednesday night, I'm on a show called Rat Queens, which is on Hyper RPG. It's on it's on Twitch. Twitch.tv slash slash Hyper RPG. Uh, you can also check it out on YouTube, uh, on Hyper RPG's YouTube channel. So check that out. And also, uh, if you're in the LA area, I am actually doing a live RPG show of my Doctor Who role-playing game. Uh, it's, it's like the 26, whatever. It's, it's the second, it's, it's the last Friday. I don't have the exact date on my head. Um, it's, it's. Not the Friday of Labor Day weekend, but the Friday before that. I should have had that date in my head ready to go. But it's that Friday before Labor Day weekend, so like the 24th, 26th, something like that, at Geeky Tees in Burbank. And if you want to get a better look at that date, you can like look at my Instagram, Riley Silverman, or you can go to the Game of Rassilon on uh, Twitter, and we have like flyers and posters for it. So it's our first live show as a, a group, and we're actually doing it to, uh, to raise money for better sound equipment for our second season, so... Beautiful. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Riley. Thank you.